Let's pray. Seek encouragement, comfort, instruction, help from God's Word today. Father, we rejoice in these words that we've we've sung this morning. We've invited you to come. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've asked for you in prayer to open our eyes, illumine our, our hearts, to give us understanding to our ears, to, to be at work through the ministry of the Word this morning. We've recognized the mysteries of your providence that we can understand what seems to be frowning providence. There's a smile beneath these truths we find such great comfort in. And we, we come to, to receive that peace and that comfort from the anchor of our soul, the Lord Jesus, who indeed is that sure. He, he is the God of the Gospel, as Piper has entitled his book. He is the treasure of all treasures. We seek Him this morning. We seek Him today and every day. Help us to see Him more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I was thinking about this uh, passage. Um, it, It seemed to be one of those that in God's providence comes at a time when we need it, and God does that regularly. And so I thought about some of the things that are going on in our world, and I'm going to read a couple of them that, uh, that I've, I've heard about, and then some that kind of led me along that path. An article on February, February 2nd, 2024, Daily Mail, there's a New York family court official, they've denied a father the legal rights to to stop his eight-year-old son from taking life-changing hormones that would begin his medical transition to a girl. Dennis Hannon, 32, a senior software engineer from Buffalo, has been locked in a nightmare legal battle with the Erie Supreme Court spanning seven years, fighting to retain his fundamental parental rights. He claims that the boy's mother pushed their child's transition, says the boy himself was not distressed about living as a boy. He lost his his parental rights. They were removed from him because he believed there was a better way to handle this. Um, The result of that is he can't afford the appeal. He spent his retirement trying to fight this. And the other result of of this was that this boy decided, who then wanted to become a girl and mom was encouraging this, went to school as a girl. And he found out because letters were sent to him with the name Ruby instead of his son's real name. Well, now that boy is back to being a boy. The madness and the irrationality is evident. The same article describes a family in Montana. They lost custody of their 14-year-old daughter because they would not allow her to transition to a male. That's Montana. And that's January 30, 2024. Child Protective Services came and took her from them. Another case occurred with a dad who lost custody of his 15-year-old son in California. This is February 22nd, 2022. Interestingly enough, this wasn't disclosed, but the ruling judge had a a trans child. Do you think she was influenced by that 
maybe should have disclosed that, never did. It came out later. Most of us have heard about or listened to even, because it's evident, it's, it's available online, school board meetings where parents are getting up and, and they're giving voice to their disdain for uh, these school boards and, and schools that are propagating you know, sociological gospels, I'll say, of secularism like CRT and, and transgenderism, LGBTQ+, and, and, uh, and also giving voice to the parental rights and, and their right to have whatever's going to be taught disclosed to them. Um, th- these are all over. You can, you can see these. And unfortunately, I found one of my uh, cousins was the head of one of these school boards. I, ju- I couldn't believe it. It just happened. They panned over to the, the president of the school board, and it was my cousin. It, I mean, this affects us in ways that we probably never imagined just seven to ten years ago. And we know that administrators are either encouraging children toward different identities or they're keeping these parents out of uh, these discussions. And, and let me just let you know, Christians, that there are a whole group of Christians professing Christians out there and saying, we need to be tolerant. They're not meaning any harm. Um, they're just going to school, and most of the time it's, it's good. I just want you to understand that that seems to me to be the equivalent of offering our children on the altar of secular humanism. So just be careful. Be careful. When we hear of these encroachments in the realm of parental rights, it can be so discouraging the hand of the, of the state seems to be getting stronger and stronger and, and more and more intrusive in the lives of its citizens. We just sometimes want to throw up our hands, demoralized, overwhelmed, wondering, you know, what in the world can we do? How do we handle this? There's this severe moral decline that's all around us. And then we see on top of that, and many of you have seen this, we see uh, criminals released with no bond after beating two New York police officers and expressing to all of us, and these are illegal immigrants, by the way, that did this, released. Now, I think since some of them have been brought into custody are going to be charged. But this is what we're dealing with, an irrational, a dark, um, a sinister, a diabolical kind of governing, a spirit of the age, which is clearly not of God. And... And so these situations may not seem real until it touches you. And some of these have touched you in different ways. You've seen them. You know that they're happening. They're happening in conservative states. They're happening in in not conservative states. They're happening all over the place. And we can expect that to increase. We've learned in, in the text, and we've been in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you can turn there just so you're you're there and you can get your... Um, your bearings here as we pick back up in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We, we have learned that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That word difficulty, we could translate peril or danger. Times of danger, severe times. We've learned that. And that peril comes in the form of ungodly characteristics in people that actually infiltrate the church. The ungodly characteristics we, we saw and we went through these extensively, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, goes on to reveal lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We, we saw, and the reason why we say it's infiltrating the church is because they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. 
But for these kinds of characteristics and ungodly, ungodly attributes to infiltrate the church, we have to recognize that there will be greater moral decline outside the church as they begin to infiltrate the church. We're, we're being boiled like the proverbial frog, right? The temperature's going up, and so oftentimes we're not noticing how severe it really is. And next time, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at persecution specifically, because that's what our text does. But what we're going to see today, and we're going to see next time, but we're going to focus on, on just the first verse, because there's another list, the list of virtues we'll look at, and we want to think about these things, because they are they're, they're informing us how we can endure. Listen to the main idea. This will be the main idea that we see in this text and into the next. God encourages endurance through the teaching, the conduct, and the perseverance of godly examples. Let me say that again. God encourages endurance through the teaching, the conduct, and the perseverance of godly examples. That's what we'll see this week and next week. Both. We'll look at these things. The scriptures prepare us for these kinds of days. They they give us the words. They, they give us an understanding. They give us the teachings and and they tell us that they're going to be even worse days. And so one of the ways that will be strengthened is through consideration of godly examples by looking at others who are actually living it out, teaching and living godly examples of endurance. We're going to see two sections today that are in stark contrast to what we saw in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 so radically different from the ungodly characteristics that we see so that we should have no issue seeing the difference, the distinction as we consider those who come into the church. First thing we're going to look at today is that God encourages endurance through the teaching of godly examples. God encourages endurance through the teaching of godly examples. That's all verse 10. So if you want to go 10a, 10, you know, we're, we're going to be all in 10 today. So you don't have to go very far. We'll, we'll look a couple other places, but that's what we're going to be. And then secondly, we're going to see that God encourages endurance through the conduct, the conduct of godly examples. So we're going to look at the teaching and the conduct, and we're going to explode out, because the text does, these various as aspects of godly conduct, and think about them and consider them and, and try to um, imagine what they look like. Hopefully we already know these things as Timothy did. Let's take a look at this. We'll, we'll read through verse 13 because that's where we'll end next time. But this time we'll end at verse 10. But look at how this all fits together. You, however, because after chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, you're, you're in this, this difficult age where there will be ex the ungodly exposed. So verse 10, you, however, Timothy, his, word, his name's not there, I know, but that's who he's speaking to, and he's speaking through him. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So that's where we'll end today, okay? And there, that word steadfastness is a transition into the rest of the passage. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at and at Lystra or Lystra, which persecutions I endured. That's, that's where we're getting this idea of endurance because we're seeing the example of what it looks like to endure and the fact that we must endure because we're living in what kind of times? Perilous, perilous times, dangerous times. And yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, 
All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise for you. I bet that's not in most promised books. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's kind of bringing back chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. He's, he's just letting Timothy know that these, you're not escaping this in this world. We aren't, we aren't running away from it. We need to know how to endure and thrive in the midst of it. We need to know how to be God's agents as these things are occurring and happening. And so let's take a look at our first point. God encourages endurance through the teaching of godly examples. God places people in our lives who who teach, who, who preach, who explain the scriptures, who reason through the scriptures, discuss it with us, Um, that we might know how to persevere, that we might know how to endure. Again, I'm pulling that word as you you saw back from verse 11, which persecutions I endured. There's an endurance that's emphasized here and in the idea of the word steadfastness in our verse today. What I want you to see first though in this, and this this is one of those kind of implicit instructions Follow godly examples. Follow godly examples. It's not not really an implication. It's it's actually emphatic. It's Paul saying, Timothy, you have followed. You have known. And it's really important that we see this. You yourself, if you were to translate this, you yourself followed closely. And I say you yourself. We don't think about this in our language very much, but there's a principle called the intensive personal pronoun. And in, in the Greek, again, not a Greek lesson so much as verbs usually include that personal pronoun. So it's written, the verb's there, it's in a particular um, order so that you know, oh, that's second person. So we all automatically include you when we translate that verb. That, that's there in the verb here. But on top of that, there's another personal pronoun, you. When we see that, it's kind of, it's kind of like saying, hey, you know this. It's intensive. It's meant to say, Timothy, wake up. Listen, you've seen this. You've known this. You've understood this. You've followed this. That's the idea. You've been attentive. This is stuff that you've already known and seen. And, and now Paul's pointing, of course, to himself. Timothy followed Paul so closely. And, and he knew the things that Paul lists next. He understood them. He was an attentive student, you can be sure. That's why he continued on with Paul. Paul saw that in him, and and that was the word about Timothy that we see in the book of Acts. There's probably an inclusion and assumption of practicing, even though that may not be the emphasis here. The emphasis here is, hey, you've fallen and watched and seen this. You know what it looks like. And, And that's what we see in this passage. We're being drawn to look to a godly example through this word from Paul to Timothy. Do you see that? Now, Paul's the godly example here, but he's always representing the perfect example, of course, which is our Savior, and we'll try to make those those things clear later as we go on in this passage. And there's much to learn from this godly example. This is a clear call to be one who walks with the wise and becomes wise, Proverbs 13.20. It's there in the text because that's what Timothy is is being told. Here, look at my example. You followed. 
And so we could say, I think safely, look for those examples to follow, especially young people, but all of us that will challenge you, that will stretch you, that will teach you, and maybe even, I know this may hurt, but expose you. Look for those examples. Those are the ones that you want to be around. Don't look for those who have nothing to offer you but to make you feel comfortable in your complacency. We're not looking for those. Those who are kind of right at your level and make you feel real cozy where you're at in your Christian life. You want to be challenged. And certainly don't look for those who, by their folly, make you feel wise. That's back on that list that we saw before of pride and boasting, arrogance, those who are full of conceit. That Proverbs 13.20 goes on to say, for the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so before we go any other place, that's something that we should think about here. This whole text is rooted in this principle of, hey, Paul is actually referring to a godly example. Yes, the godly example is himself, but that's what he's doing. And so we ought to think about that too and how important that principle is. And you'll see that as we go through this text. Look for godly examples. Seek to follow them as they follow Christ. Now there's another implication here too. And that implication at the very beginning, I'll bring it out again, is that we should want to be godly examples that others follow. We should want to be that. And, and, and we should lament when we're not. We should grieve, and it should drive us by true repentance to further and further pursuit of holiness, godliness, understanding. Because no matter what you're doing, there, there are always eyes upon you, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in your home, whether it's sibling, looking to sibling, especially you older siblings. There are always eyeballs on you. The world as you're interacting with them. We, we want to be those who others look to in times where counsel and wisdom are needed. We, don't be, we want to be those that, that people can look to in time of trial. We want to be those whose lives can stand a strong and prolonged gaze. Don't we all want that? Faithful teaching is essential to our endurance. Remember, that's the whole idea that we're looking at here because that's the focus of this. He needs to endure these ter- perilous times, these difficult times. And so Paul is saying, hey, look, look, you, you followed, you've understood deeply my teaching. That's, that's what he's doing here. <clears throat> Remember the context of that times of difficulty, the danger, and, and there will be co- those who come with error, those who come to mislead, those who come uh, to deceive. Remember, we saw that there are predators who, who are very intentional about it. Those who don't necessarily intend to, but they do because they're steeped in error, not even realizing how much error they're in. Not everybody has the motivation. Ooh, I can't wait to lead people astray. That, you know, that's rare, but it does happen. When I say it's rare, I, maybe that's not, that's probably too strong a word. It happens more than you think. We're being misled every day. The culture out there, we should expect they want to mislead us. There will be those who hate the truth. And they come after us. They lay siege works of their indoctrination to to chip away at, at the truths that we have come to 
be convicted of. They cut off the supply of truth as much as they can to so many. They marginalize our beliefs from this word. They, they mock mercilessly those who hold them. They wish to demolish the strongholds that we hold to and replace them with weakened structures. Satan would like nothing more than to have an impotent, harmless, religious form out there. Oh, he loves that. People calmly, gently go to hell because they think that they're okay. Christian, let me say this, because Paul is very um, clear about this. He says, you yourself have followed my teaching. And I think I can say to most of you in this room, to at least the members and, and some beyond that, I can say, Christians, you yourselves have followed the Lord's teaching. You know it. You know the truth. The teaching that reveals the supremacy of God, the excellencies of Christ, the unshakable nature of his kingdom. You know this truth. And so as you're encountering the kinds of trials and difficulties and tribulations, you know this truth. And and what Paul is saying is go back to that. Go back to that. You followed, you've known. Bring it back to the forefront of your mind. Think about these. He said that before. This teaching that reveals the pitiful and vain nature of man's machinations, man's weak and feeble plans, the teaching that reveals to you the solidity of your salvation, the assurance that you ought to have in him, the teaching that reveals to you the reality of of suffering in this world and, and how we are to handle that suffering and deal with it with an eternal perspective, with a cross-centered perspective, a Christ-centered perspective. This teaching that will give you example after example after example of men and women who have endured trials for the sake of faithfulness to the Lord and his word. And so just as Timothy looked to preaching and teaching, Paul's preaching and teaching of the whole counsel of God, that's Acts 20, verse 27, you have the whole counsel of God. And this is a encouragement that we find we find what we need to look to those examples of those who are teaching us but also to be those who are taught by the holy spirit as we study ourselves god encourages endurance through the teaching of godly examples i know some of your favorites in terms of who you have been encouraged by course there's a list isn't there for all of us but there are some that just resonate with some more than others but god uses them doesn't he to um to help us to strengthen us but then we get into the real important aspect of moving beyond teaching because that teaching has to be undergirded by conduct and so the second point god encourages endurance through the conduct of godly examples. And I use this word, even though it's included in the list, as kind of a summary of all of them. We are most encouraged as we see God's word in living form. When we see it actually lived, exemplified, exemplified, when we see it obeyed and trusted. And so this is what we look for from others. And, and it should inspire us to emulate that. Let's take a look at this list Again, it's entitled by some a virtue list. But again, Paul is pointing to what 
Timothy already knows about himself. You yourself have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. All of these things are under that banner of conduct. Let's start with the first one. God knows that we need to see it. God knows that we need to see it. We need to see the deeds as well as the doctrine, right? We need to see the conduct as well as the conviction. And so what follows in this virtue list is is so important because it is so crucial to see the word of God embodied, to see how someone handles tribulation, to see how someone handles change, dramatic change, trauma, or even uh, triumph. How do they handle this? Do they grow in arrogance or do they handle it godly in, in, in humility? What do they do when they're under duress? Again, Paul calls upon Timothy to consider what he has already observed in Paul firsthand. This is not Paul boasting. Remember where Paul is. Paul is in prison. He knows that his time is short. He knows he's going to be executed very soon. This is his second, as far as we know, second time in the Roman prison, not like the first under just house arrest. No, in a prison awaiting his execution. And so he's thinking about what can I do to help my spiritual son, Timothy, so that, so that he can handle these perilous times, so that he can endure. Well, I, I've got to point to him what he's already seen happen. He was there firsthand as a witness in my own life. That's basically what he's doing. That, that's not about Paul trying to focus attention on himself and to prop himself up. And he'll make that clear later as we get on later into this passage. But he points to a real example of godliness. This is a dying man's care for his pupil. And it, it's also him knowing, well, I want him to visualize it. I want him to see it. He has seen it. I don't want him just to imagine it. I want him to know what this looks like to live out the gospel, to live out these principles and precepts, to see what it looks like to grasp hold and and obey, to trust in the promises of God, to rest in the instructions that he's given and the warnings. So we want to look at these items and envision them that we might emulate them in godly endurance. So first of them, there's six of them. Look to those whose manner of life does not contradict their doctrine. Look to those whose manner of life does not contradict their doctrine. Manner of life is just another way of saying um, conduct. We could translate course of life. It's a big picture. What does is, what is the course of Paul's life look like? Does, does Paul sin in his life? Well, of course he does. He's not Jesus. But his manner of life loudly proclaims something. And so he's saying, hey, look at my life, Timothy. Look at the way I carried myself. Not look at me and find out if there be any sin in me. No, look at my conduct. Look at the overwhelming picture of what was carried out, the pattern of my living. The way that he has handled himself through trial and triumph. Matthew Henry states regarding Paul, he did not pull down by his living what he built up with his preaching. I'll say that one more time because it's tremendously convicting for me. He did not pull down by his living what he built up with his preaching. 
How powerful to, to see a life lived well for Christ. How tremendously overwhelming that is. How wonderful to observe the gospel incarnate, right? In human flesh, apart from Christ, but from a Christ follower. So one can process a message spoken, can't we? And we can dissect that which is written. We can look at it, we can analyze it, and it's good for us to do that. But when it's witnessed in real life, that power sets in. Now, God works through his powerful word. He describes it as living and active. But then again, he, we see pictures of where he's pointing us to examples of what it looks like to live out this word. And we know this is true. We know that the conscience is pricked. The emotions are touched. Faith is, is strengthened in ways sometimes that don't happen as we're reading the word and we see it. It's like reinforcements to an infantry line. We're, we're seeing a brother or sister going through something. And we're going, oh, Lord, forgive me for my complaints. Forgive me for my weakness. Forgive me for not relying upon you, for not trusting in your word. There is a tremendous grace. Don't, please don't misunderstand that we need to start with this written word. And there is a tremendous grace when God illumines the mind to understand the truth as it is proclaimed and as it is written. And yet there is this powerful resolve that comes as this word is beheld in living color. Lord willing, in a, I don't know, a few months, I'll be doing a biographical sermon in the afternoon on Adoniram Judson and, uh, and just seeing examples like that and the examples that he was able to see in others. Lots of fodder for us to be encouraged. Can you see what Paul is doing here for Timothy? What a grace he's serving up to him. There's no speck of pride in this. There's no speck of arrogance. It's, it's what Timothy needed. He needed to remember that this word is alive and it is living, not just in its nature and its contained form, but in, in human beings and souls saved and converted and changed by it. That's what he's serving up to him. And oh, that we would from this very day resolve that our conduct would more reflect the truth that we have heard and believed than at ever t- any time before. Look to those whose manner of life does not contradict their doctrine. The next, look to those whose godly purpose in their conduct is clear. Look to those whose godly purpose in their conduct is clear. And again, we're still in verse 10. You don't have to go far and you can see there, my conduct, my aim in life. Paul reminds Timothy that he knows, Timothy knows his aim in life. There is a motivating force behind all that Paul does. There's something moving him. There's a reason for what he does, a supreme reason. And and the way it's described here is an aim. We could use the word purpose. And and so there's, there's an aim to what he's doing. He's not just saying, hey, it sounds like a great day to be in prison today. Hey, sounds like, you know, a good day to see if we can get stoned. That could be taken the wrong way with rocks. He has an overarching purpose that's leading him, that's guiding him. And and he's not departing from the right or to the left, but continuing on. Because it's, it's his purpose in life. He reveals this in different places for us in different ways. We want to think about one. 
even though the application there is, is dealing with, you know, meat sacrifice to idols and things like that. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the principle applies to everything. Whether you eat or drink whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. First catechism, most catechisms, what do we learn? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is Paul's overarching purpose. And, and he reveals that really what that means is that his overarching purpose is, is ultimately God's purpose because that's why we were called. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We're called, generally speaking, every single one of us, we don't know that specific niche or, you know, what ministry specifically we're supposed to do, but we're to do all to the glory of God. That's our calling. That's why we exist on the earth. That's why we're saved, to bring glory and honor to him, to do his will. Colossians 3.17 says it slightly different. Paul again writes, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what it means when it says name of the Lord Jesus is that which is in accordance with his will, his character, his purpose. So it's the same thing. It's not an incantation. Whatever you do, say in, in Jesus' name. Now that, that, that's ridiculous. This is not a magic spell. This is a life that we're following and living for. His purpose, his aim. The name, that's what it meant, the name of the Lord Jesus. Do not dishonor that name. We see it in, you know, John mentioned some of these. This one he mentioned, Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to live is Christ. My purpose is Christ's purpose. I'm here for him. That's why I exist. That's why I'm here. He says something similar in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You know it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Christ who lives in me. I have a greater purpose. And so when, when he says to Timothy, you know my aim in life. Timothy knows. He's heard him speak it. He's watched him live it. And there is Timothy considering this letter that he's reading, this letter that's written and addressed to him and to him and through him to us. And he's saying, I know. And we do too. We know Paul's aim because he's revealed it to us. That aim also includes a part of what that purpose is. We've seen even in this letter in 2 Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 10. The Apostle Paul says that, <clears throat> therefore, I endure everything. We're talking about endurance. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So his aim is for the sake of the elect, but ultimately what's that for? So that there'll be more of those who worship the Lord God and bring honor and glory to his name. And that's his purpose given by who? God. It's God's purpose for him. He says also in, in chapter 2, verse 24, listen to this, verse 24 through 26, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. I mean, just something so simple as this, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, that's hard to do when someone's in error and they be maybe misleading someone that you care deeply about, isn't it? It's hard to do. But, but he tells us why. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge 
of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He knows they're in bondage. He has compassion for them, and he understands the will of God is not for him to get angry and frustrated, but, but instead to do that which would tend to God's glory and the rescue of sinners for the honor of his name. How empowering to hear the motivations of the godly, the aim, the purpose. How encouraging to know what moves a soul to pursue holiness. Not so that I can feel superior to someone else. Not so that I can revel in my good works. Not so that I can compare and contrast my life to everybody else. No, because I'm living for him. I'm here for him. His purpose is supreme. Maybe the, the most humbling part about this, the most convicting point here is that Paul's fundamental aim in life is also ours. Our, that's our aim. We should be able to say to those who follow us, you know my aim, you know my purpose, you know why I exist on earth. Yeah, it might be broken <clears throat> and, and it might you know, not all fit together smoothly, but you know as you consider my whole life why I'm here, what I'm here for, what I'm living for. That's our aim. We don't borrow from Paul in, in saying that either. It is our purpose because the scripture tells us so. We're not just imitating him. We're seeing in him and those like him who are clear on their overarching purpose, our own aim in life. That aim that gives the reason why you study closely God's word. That aim, that purpose that gives reason for why you pray for your family persistently, why you consistently do family worship, why you seek opportunities to share the gospel, why you put away sin and repent of it, why you change jobs to give more time to serve the, your family and your church, why you endure the bad behavior of your boss, your sibling, the government, anyone else. Your reason for contentment in trials and tribulations Lord, have mercy on me right now. I'm thinking about this because I confess I haven't been content through this time that I've been going through and it's so minimal compared to so many. You and I have been given a name in life and it should inform our priorities, our decisions, and efforts. And let's not forget the work of our Savior here who when He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing what is before Him, when He's sweating drops of blood, capillaries bursting in his face. He says to his father, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We have many godly examples to look to in the Scripture, but none surpass Christ. But it is good, isn't it, to read biographies of godly men and women to follow their lives and their motivations and their encouragements. It's good for us to do that. How delightful, though, um, to wake up knowing, hey, I know what I'm to be about today. I know why I exist today. I know I'm putting, why I'm putting on this shoe and that shoe. Why I'm getting up even through the aches and the pains and the difficulty and the challenge and, and sometimes drudgery. I know why I'm here. And there's something that's going to help me to ascend through it all maybe even transcend. We also want to next look to those who clearly walk by faith in their Christian lives. 
those who clearly walk by faith, you see it there on the list, the next one, my faith, he says. In other words, consider the pattern of those who wholeheartedly rely on the Lord as they live out their Christian life. They rest in him. They trust in him. Paul reminds Timothy that he knows intimately his faith. I mean, Timothy has had a front row seat to see Paul's trust in Christ as he follows him, as he does his bidding. Timothy has seen and he's witnessed his faith in the scriptures, his faith in in the promises of scripture, his faith to obey the, the, the commands of scripture and to follow the precepts and principles of scripture. He's watched him and he has seen his faith in the world that is to come. He's been able to see this firsthand and certainly he's seen it, his faith and his integrity and his unswerving devotion. Is it easy to falter in our faith? It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to not trust. How encouraging to see the firm, steady faith of godly examples. And I want to just, you know, say something and make sure we understand the word faith is cheapened by easy believism in our day. Those who believe in, you know, the... The, the free grace people that are out there. We just studied this in GTLI um, and God's providence as well. They don't understand that this faith we're talking about is not a faith of just merely assenting to something, really saying, oh yeah, we believe that happened. Or we believe that to be true. No, that's not this faith. That's not a saving faith. And you can go and you can see both in Paul and in James, you can see that we're talking here about a saving faith. A faith that relies, it trusts, rests in. Ray Comfort calls it like putting on the parachute. You're trusting when you jump out of a plane in that parachute. Why would you endure all the onslaught of what the world brings to you because you just kind of believe something happened? No, your life, your soul is resting in that reality of the Lord Jesus and his provision of salvation, his promise of of future resurrection. And so we, we need to see this faith in action. We might see the real versus the imposter. As I think Jeremy brought up, you know, the parable of the soils and the seed. And we know what happens there. And there's only one true faith in that, in that parable. It's the one planted in good soil. The other are imposters. We've learned a lot about imposters in, in this particular letter. How blessed to see faith in its fruits. You want to know that there, there, there's a whole chapter about how important this is in, in our Bibles. Anybody know what chapter that is? Whole about real faith, what it looks like. Godly examples after godly example after godly example. Hebrews 11. And, and just, I think it's good for us, isn't it? For, for us to remember that, you know what? God affirms this faith. He wants us to see it so much so that there's a whole chapter just focusing on name after name after name. There's a whole word of God that gives us example after example, but here it's all consolidated into one chapter. And we need that once in a while. And so if you're struggling with faith, go, go look at this chapter. I'll just give you a couple of highlights here. Look at verse 1 through 3, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Wow, there's a lot said in that statement. You can go back and listen to the sermon. I'm not going to repreach it. But then he says in verse six, and without faith, this kind of faith, not a mere assent, but without true faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then he gives the example of Noah. And what a great example that is. Building for decade upon decade, this big thing, and there's no water and what in the world are you doing and all the mockery. And that's what you're doing, right? You're building your life on the solid rock of Christ, hoping that the Lord would use you to see other people saved. Because you're walking by faith. It goes on, look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's who you are, according to Peter as well. We are strangers and exiles. We're, we're the immigrants, if you will. We're the exiles on this earth. We're those who have another home, but we're here now. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of, the, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to have had opportunity to return. But, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's our focus. Our, our faith is fixed on that heavenly city, that, that uh, building which is made with no hands, that place that he's preparing for us this very day. Uh, that's what allows us to keep moving forward. It's that faith. And, and what he's doing for Timothy and for all of us is saying, Timothy, you've seen that in me. That's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's how. Because of this faith and these realities. How we need to see the faith of godly examples and it's good. It is good to see it in history. It is true, but all the better to see it today and follow closely those who have fought the good fight because we need this rich buoy for our souls. We need it. And as much as we should look to others that we might be encouraged to endure, let's not forget to feed our own faith that we might be that encouragement for them because you don't know what you will have to endure. You don't know what you'll wake up tomorrow having to deal with. What you do know is what you need in order to endure it. It's right here in the Scriptures. It's already been entrusted to you and available for you to feast upon. We should desire to be an example to others. And so, let the Lord help us to be humbled enough to look for godly examples of this faith and earnest enough to exemplify this kind of faith in ourselves. The next thing we see is that we should look to those who are long-suffering towards one another. Long-suffering towards one another. I say long-suffering, it says um, patient here, uh, and, and I say towards one another because I think there's a difference between this word and the last word we'll look at, which is steadfastness. We could translate both of them patience. We could actually translate both of them long-suffering. But it's clear by the context and the flow of the passage that there's a difference. It's not just mere repetition. Because one's leading into persecution. We'll talk about that later, okay? And this one is probably dealing with the, the relationships that we have with others. Those who um, pro, pro, proclaim the name of Christ, or maybe even those who are interested, 
um, those who seem to be interested. I don't know. But Paul reminds Timothy that he has followed closely his patience. We can only imagine the reception that Paul received when he was preaching and teaching, going into a synagogue, going into a public place, wherever it might be, how many questions he, he must have had. I mean, it, it must have been unbelievable to, to watch and to behold professing people, interested people. Imagine the arguments postulated, maybe for good reason, because they're just trying to work through it. They've been, they've been, you know, they, they've been entrenched in a different worldview. Many of them Jews, because he's going into synagogues, but certainly some pagans as well. He's speaking to them along the way, and he's particularly sent out to the, to the Gentile. All kinds, I'm sure, of, of refutations that he had to deal with. And I have to imagine that there are probably many who were stubbornly following the status quo, unmoved by the clear truth of the words that he spoke, whether it was Jews entrenched in their religion or the Gentiles in paganism. He was long-suffering. Timothy must have seen how he handled those situations. He was patient in them. He was even patient with those who preached the gospel. Philippians 1.17 tells us, out of selfish ambition, thinking to afflict him while he was in prison. He was patient towards them. You can see by his own words. You can look at that in Philippians 1. I don't think he was perfect. We know he's not perfect. Maybe his, his spat with Barnabas is an example. We can debate that, can't we? With John, around John Mark. Barnabas bared with John Mark. Likely there's a relationship there too, like, family relationship, but he bore with him and he ends up writing, most believe, the gospel of Mark by the Holy Spirit. Don't know. I just know that he's not perfect, but the character of his life, the character of his life is that of patience. And patience may be the simplest of principles and yet the most egregiously violated. And patience is lost at the most benign of circumstances. Isn't it? the dumbest ways we become impatient. On your way home from church, God forbid, someone goes 35 and a 45 or 50. And we lose our minds. An order that's incorrect. The service gone longer than expected. A cashier who seems disinterested and painstakingly slow, more interested in not chipping a nail than making sure that you're served. And you go, you're trembling. You don't even realize it. Your face has gotten red. Impatience. Someone, a sales call. But patience can also be lost in the most important circumstances. When training and correcting a child, I'll just go through these pretty quickly. I wrote down when counseling with someone who who seems to be acting and speaking irrationally, you're screaming on the inside. When someone says something, we assume the worst. We're impatient with them. Or someone doesn't say something and we are perturbed because we expected them to say this or that. When we're focused on something, really intensely focused, and, and we're interrupted. Ooh, watch out. Maybe when it seems no one's listening to us. Or maybe it's when no one will let us get a word in edgewise. <laughs> but be, 
and you feel it again. We all recognize that this is a fruit of the Spirit. It's often lacking, and we, we need to remember the strong connection all of these characteristics have with knowing and being mindful of scriptural teaching. If that word is on our minds, if the, if the example of Christ is at the forefront in the midst of the line where we're waiting on that cashier, surely it will have that focus and that, that power to subdue us and to remind us, what, what, what am I worried about here? I should be praying for this person right now. I should be praying for myself right now. And thank you son, uh, for the, uh, the question that came back home. Will we need patience and glory? <laughs> it came back to my home in family worship. That's a great question. The question is, if we're in glory, what do we have to be patient about? So here's, I don't have a, I don't have a wonderful, eloquent answer for that. I, I believe that our patience will be present, but it won't be tested. How about that? All patience isn't all about someone else's sin. It will be it will be there as a part of the fruit of the spirit. We'll never have to experience impatience. Isn't that wonderful? So it's there, but but it won't be tested. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. No, that's just I'm trying to figure it out. But thank you for the question. I may never have an answer, a true answer to that question, but it was a good one. Look to those who exemplify love. Of course, we know this. We've spent a lot of time on this toward others. The supreme of all virtues is compelling as we behold it. You've seen my love. And of course, we know as Timothy's thinking about that, he's thinking about Paul's love for Christ, the supremacy of that love for Christ and the supremacy of that love for the lost, that love to share the gospel. And of course, the love for the churches and the care for those that he has ministered to. Even Timothy himself, his love for him. And he can see that in his sacrifice. He can see that in his generosity. He can see that in his suffering. All of that is about love. He's doing it because love of Christ compels. That's what Paul wrote. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls or compels us because we have concluded this. This is having the scripture in our minds. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Love of Christ compels love and purpose. Do you see that in that passage? What a reminder to look to those who love well, that we might be encouraged by their example. And as always, we start with Christ himself, who is the perfect example of love. He loved us and gave himself for us. But yet we still look to godly examples who sacrifice give, serve, and we see the fruit of that love. And what a blessing it is to see it. It reminds us that the Word of God is true. And those who don't have it, Paul tells us, not Paul, John tells us in 1 John 4, they're not of God because God is love. And then this last one, which really transitions us to the next section, Look to those godly examples who persevere in their walk amidst trials. We'll just touch on this a little bit because we're going to get into it a lot more next time. But I, I want you to see it. Paul reminds Timothy that he has seen Paul's steadfastness. 
He's witnessed it. He's watched it firsthand again. He knows what it looks like to endure. And that's what Timothy's going to need because of these difficult, perilous times he has to endure. And so not only has he, has he heard the scripture on it, not only does he have access to the scripture on it, but he also has seen it firsthand. He knows what it looks like to endure, to be steadfast. He knows what it looks like to persevere. And the idea I think we have here is more focused on fortitude in adverse circumstances. Fortitude in adverse circumstances. There's a picture here of pressing through intense challenges and obstacles and, and, and difficulties. And I want to say something here, and I won't go into a full explanation of it. I think this is summarizing as well. The reason why we are steadfast is because all the others that we've just looked at, because we're we're trusting in the scriptures that's prominent in our mind because of the, the godly character and conduct, because we're living it out, we're seeking to obey, but we're doing that because why? We're trusting, we have an aim that's beyond us, right? That we're looking forward to, and that's informing everything else. And because we love, we persevere. We love Christ, we love the purpose he's given to us, we love the people he's called us to reach, we love the, the, the people he's called us to, to shepherd. We, all of these things come together in why and how someone perseveres. Paul is a wonderful example of this kind of fortitude. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, modern-day Turkey, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the remedy. Rely on the God. That's faith. Well, that faith that enables perseverance. And once again, we remember that Christ is our perfect example. We look to him and we see all of these virtues perfectly. We look to the Christ who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We look to the Christ who not only kept the law, who did not return any retaliation, but we look to him who went to a cross. And on that cross, what's on his mind? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's on his mind? What's coursing through his mind? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. What's on his mind? It is finished. Paying the ransom price. Or how about this? Today you shall be with me in paradise. What's on his mind? His purpose. Why he's come to be loving, living steadfastly to the end. His aim, to glorify his Father who is in heaven. And so he dies, he's buried, and he's raised on the third day. He accomplishes what he came to do, defeating sin and death and offering life through his sacrifice, through his law-keeping and judgment-taking so that you might have life. And anyone here who's an unbeliever, there he is, there for you. Run to him. Give yourself to him. Trust and rest in him and his word. You want to know what example to start with? Start with him. Start with Jesus, who's revealed from Genesis to Revelation for you. And yet there is great benefit in looking to godly examples of these characteristics. This is the last scripture I want to share with you because it tells us that if we're going to endure 
We need brothers and sisters to look to. You know, Elijah thought he was the only one on earth that was spared, and he, he basically threw in the towel. He was in, in deep depression, and the Lord revealed to him that he had many others. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, verses eight, verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, affliction is right there at your door. Attack is right there there at your door. Suffering is right there at your door. Resist him, it says. How? Firm in your faith. Okay, so feed your faith. But one of the ways that you are strengthened is knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, just like Timothy knew when he could look to the Apostle Paul. I, there, are bad, there are bad things that have happened, difficult things. And we can say bad with the world, but we know that God is purposeful. And everything comes to us as believers through the divine filter of his love. And so we look at a brother who is suffering, and we have one who is suffering beyond anything that we expected. We know God has a purpose in it. And we want to be an example to him, and we already are seeing him as an example to us. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need to learn the lessons of Scripture applied in the book of human lives. Live for Christ. All that's what we need. We need others to hold our hands and walk us through these times. We need to not be prideful and instead humble We have the God of the universe and he will uphold us by his word through his spirit, through the abiding presence of of Christ who will not leave us or forsake us. And yet in his marvelous grace, he has given us the church that we might share in one another's afflictions to bring the word of God to life by our conduct, by our aim in life, by our faith, our patience, our love, our steadfastness. Again, may the Lord grant us these godly examples and mold us more and more to be those examples for others unto His glory. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we consecrate this passage to You. One verse so profoundly important. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, please. Keep our eyes fixed on Him. Help us to look at our our circumstances through the lens of the cross and the resurrection and the future glory that awaits us. Please, Lord, help us. And then, Lord, help us to be purposeful about being around those who are godly examples, beholding their lives, learning, growing, and help us to be examples to others, not examples of folly, but of wisdom and of all the things that we saw on this list knowing the word and our conduct, living it out. We pray for those in unbelief. We plead with you again for their souls. Let them not live this life and waste it. Save them from their bondage to sin, we pray. Let them come in true repentance and faith to the cross and rely on our Savior for salvation, we pray. Help us to endure in these times of difficulty and help those that we love endure and be steadfast in the midst of their affliction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.